TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, I'm Dylan Marin, and this is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, the show that takes conflict and turns it into conversation. Now, I want to open with a quick thank you to every single one of you who went out and got my book, read my book, and told me how much you loved my book. It means more to me than you know. For the rest of you, I love you too, and Conversations with People Who Hate Me, the book, is available everywhere. Consider it as a guide on how to navigate difficult conversations that you may face in your own life from lessons that I learned here on this show. You can find it in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook too. I also fully support you borrowing it from your local library, and the link to order the book is in the description of this episode. Let's begin. Now, for the first time ever on this show, we are going to do a three part mini series. And this trio of episodes centers on one topic conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is a widely debunked practice that falsely claims to change a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. The American Psychiatric Association has vocally opposed it if you need some more official opposition. 20 states, plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, have laws or regulations protecting young people from this harmful practice. And that statement is pulled directly from the Human Rights Campaign website. But conversion therapy is still legal in many places where it is protected on the grounds of religious liberty. The harm of these programs cannot be overstated. It leaves many participants with trauma and, for some, suicidal ideation and attempts. This, as you can tell, or maybe you already know, is a big macro topic. But as always, this show will tackle it on the micro, between two individual people. To begin this mini-series, I'm speaking with Garrett Conley, a writer, activist, and conversion therapy survivor. Garrett is the author of the memoir Boy Erased that documents his time in a conversion therapy center called Love in Action. Boy Erased was adapted into a film of the same name in 2018 that starred Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman, and Russell Crowe. You don't need to be familiar with the film or the memoir to listen to this episode, but you might recognize it. Joining Garrett in conversation will be John Smid, the man who ran the conversion therapy center that Garrett escaped from. Though this is a three-parter, released over three weeks, it still follows the basic structure of a moderated episode. First, I'll speak to Garrett, then I will speak to John, and then I will connect them with each other. I've decided to give this story three episodes because both of my guests share detailed stories and I wanted to give each of their stories space and time to breathe. I also want to give you space and time to consider them, to sit with them. 
I know that this is not a typical conversations with people who hate me story. It doesn't take place in the digital realm. It can't even be stretched by claiming that the conflict began in a text or email, because it didn't. The internet doesn't really play into this story at all. Still, some of the biggest themes that we've explored on this show are present throughout. The idea that hurt people hurt people, and the way that shame can shape us. It's also about forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's about how two strangers' lives became intertwined with each other. Last thing I'll say before we begin, and it's important. In today's episode, we discuss sexual assault and suicide. If now is not a good time for you to be hearing about those topics, turn this off. Go do something that feels right for you. And if you're struggling, there is no shame, but there is help. The National Suicide Hotline is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255. For LGBTQ folks, there's also The Trevor Project. Head on over to thetrevorproject.org for more resources. All right, with all of that said, let's kick off this mini-series. Here is Garrett. Hi, Garrett. Hi. How are you? Great. How's your day going so far? Well, it was freezing outside. Yes. I, I think the wind chill was seven. Yeah. And the sidewalks were a little precarious. Oh, God. But Did you slip? No. Okay. So, Garrett, there are a lot of ways you write about yourself mm-hmm. um, and have spoken about yourself. But kind of give us the backstage of the boring, mundane Garrett. Oh, great. Um, I love Garrett, Garrett on Garrett, as I said I love before. That. So, yeah, um, tell us about you. Well, this is kind of the first time in my life when, like this year, is the first time when I actually get to have a more boring mm. day-to-day existence. Oh, congratulations. Um, which I love. Yeah. I also find it challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do continue to go around to different universities and organizations and churches and talk about conversion therapy and compassion. and But I also spend a lot of time at home forcing myself to write. Okay. Um, <laughs> and how's that going for you? <laughs> Well, I recently tried this thing where I read for like two hours. Okay. And then I usually take a bath. Oh. Yeah. I take fancy. A, yeah. It's like a morning bath and I read for like 30 minutes, like something, you know, I try to read a classic before I get started. Okay. So like Anna Karenina right now. Yes. Um, I've been reading a lot of classic love stories because that's what I'm trying to write, mm-hmm. a love story. And it's not pretty. You know, like the the image that I'm giving you through audio Sounds kind of, you know, ooh, nice life. Mm-hmm. But it's just like me in my cramped bathtub. Yeah. That I'm in my like bathroom that kind of still smells like kitty litter mm-hmm, too much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the I'm just like beautiful avoiding romantic it. smells. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and if my husband were just like walking by the doorway yeah. during that, yeah. I would just be like, this is gross. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm a good person anymore. <laughs> You know, because no one's there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just you. And then I time myself for three hours. I don't look at the internet until at least 3 or 4 p.m. Wow. I know. And when the alarm goes off, yeah. I'm like, I'm done. And then I usually cook something for myself and oh then God. like hang out with my husband and watch movies. You're describing such a beautiful <laughs> life. I know. Wow. This is why I've completely engineered it in yeah. this past. I mean, I still, you know, was teaching once a week and yeah. doing other stuff. But on the perfect days, mm-hmm. this is what my life looked like. But I mean, I'm highly aware of the fact that this is a very temporary existence I've created yeah. for myself. You know, like there's 
there's a certain insulation that came with the success of Boy Race mm-hmm. that I am fully taking advantage of and know mm-hmm. that it is not going to continue past this year. Take advantage. You know, and like I'm trying to write a book so that I can yeah. not actually make money, but yeah. like make <laughs> more of a name a yeah. for myself in a different yeah. way. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm going to go back to teaching. Yeah. And so you said this time was afforded to you because of Boy Erased. Yeah. I mean, it. Um, the book wasn't selling at first. It was like, you know, like any other book that comes from someone who's not known, who doesn't have an internet presence. You know, the publisher is like, we did you a favor. Here's your... Mm-hmm. We printed it yeah, for you. Yeah, we printed it. Mm-hmm. Um, good for you. <laughs> uh, and I was just thrilled. I was like, oh my God, a book was a book. published. Yeah, huge. I never thought I would be yeah. a person who ever had a book come yeah. out. You know, it was so exciting to me. And I even when I was writing it and when I got an agent, it was all, all of it felt very fake. Like just mm. life is fake. This is not real. Because if you typed in conversion therapy back then, like let's say 2010, mm-hmm. Right, it was mostly positive portrayals. Mm-hmm. Of it was conver- like try this thing. It was like try this. Go to <laughs> Exodus International yeah. and you'll be cured. Jumping in here quickly to let you know that Exodus International was this huge conversion therapy umbrella organization that connected a lot of conversion therapy quote unquote ministries, and it dissolved in 2013 when its president Alan Chambers apologized for the pain and hurt that it caused the gay community. It felt very lonely. We didn't have a number to it, so. I felt like it was something that rarely ever happened to anyone. Mm -hmm. Turns out there were 750,000 people in the United States alone who underwent conversion therapy, which is a conservative number. Yeah. You know, like every portrayal of conversion therapy in popular culture, it was treated as this niche kind of funny thing. Mm -hmm. Like the take is always, obviously everyone was having sex with everyone, Mm -hmm. but that's not ever true because conversion therapy strips you of any desire for sex at all. Like it tells you you're disgusting. trauma yeah it's Mm -hmm. just not really it's not really fun (laughs) right but but you know it it was a little bit frustrating and and isolating to be like well uh i guess no one's taking this seriously Mm -hmm. or if they are taking it seriously it's just people who want to do conversion therapy right 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 and what was the name of the place where you went love in action love in action that's quite a name they were in memphis tennessee Mm mm-hmm They were the largest residential program in the country. It was first designed in 1973 in San Rafael, California. It was about a year after the American Psychological Association declassified homosexuality as a mental illness. And it was largely in response to that. Yeah, it was in response to that. It was also like a church group that I think legitimately felt like they wanted to explore something. Mm -hmm. Like here are people with what they called same-sex attraction, not homosexuality. SSA. Yeah. Um, Because if you call it an attraction rather than an identity, Mm. it's something you can treat. And there are a lot of people today Mm -hmm. that will say that they didn't promise a cure Mm -hmm. or that they never used the word cure. Mm -hmm. A, they did. B, when my mom called and and asked about love in action, the the church was like, there's an 80% cure rate. It's fine, which I don't know where they got that statistic from, but it's fine. You know, Pulled it out, of, out the of the air, air. And they were like, why not? Yeah. It sounds good. Well, if the Holy Spirit can come visit you out yeah. of the air, then 80% totally. cure rates can too. I would have said 81 or 79 <laughs> yeah. to make it sound to realistic. Make it sound, yeah, it sounds but a little too rounded. But if you're like, rounded. it's too round, you're like, yeah. honey. 
I don't believe that. But, you know, I think they weren't too worried about people being skeptical. Yeah, they were just like, yeah. come. So how did you get to Love in Action? What was the, sure. what led you there? Um, so when I was 16, I was living in a small town in Arkansas. And then my dad became a preacher. It's like, I didn't know what we were in for, mm-hmm. but there was this insane scrutiny around my dad and his family. You know, uh, what I was reading was under scrutiny. What I was looking at, what I was consuming, the internet was like a dangerous place. Totally. Still is. <laughs> and so um, I had a girlfriend at the time and everything was kind of like thrown up in the air from that. You know, you're, you have a certain amount of denial when you're a gay kid with a girlfriend and you're like, it's fine. Like, <laughs> we're for God, so we're not going to fuck. I don't know if I can say fuck on this, but. No, you okay. say fuck. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to fuck. Uh, it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Everything's good and pure. We exchanged, you know, little purity rings and oh, things like that. Yeah. yeah. And she, w- I mean, she was very beautiful and very nice and very smart mm-hmm. and a good friend. And so a part of me was like, sure. And in the closet, it's easy good to life. confuse that. Yeah, for good life. Exactly. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to have sex. It'll be fine. Oh, yeah. Um, that can wait. Yeah. And so... I think it was like the year before I was going to graduate. My dad gets a phone call from Chloe's, I have to change her name every time, Chloe's <laughs> uh, mother who says, oh, Chloe's brother has just been caught with his stepbrother Whoa. in a compromising position. Whoa. And um, my dad gets called over there to my girlfriend's house to basically perform an ad hoc conversion therapy he didn't. We wouldn't call it that, right? 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 right. Um, but he went over there and explained to them that it was wrong, and gave them Bible verses, prayed with them. You know, went into a separate room with the parents, and then a separate room with my girlfriend, and was like, "Here's what we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again." And I'm sitting at home with my mom, just sort of like silent, like you know what's going on. Well, I know what's going on. I know that I'm lying. Like, it's like you can live in denial, but when someone's, when your dad mm-hmm. is performing conversion therapy on your girlfriend's brother, yeah. you're like, uh oh. You're like, okay, it's, yeah. it's coming for me. Yeah, something, yeah. it's like, it's circling. Yeah. Right. And so I remember like a week later, you know, Chloe and I are talking and I'm on the phone and I'm just like, I don't think that I can be your boyfriend anymore. Huh. And she's like, what are you talking about? You know, because we're, you know, we're like geared up to already be married. Mm -hmm, mm Because this town is like, we met in church. They're like, y'all are going off to different colleges. You need to like lock it down. She's the option. She's it. Yeah. Get engaged. Let's do this. And I just was like, I'm sorry, I can't explain it. Mm. And it was terrible. It was like, I I know what I did to her was very harmful, Mm. but I, I just couldn't. I couldn't explain it. And I think she probably thought like, oh, I guess he's judging me because of my brother or something. Um, So fast forward, go off to college, still in the closet very much. So this was like a a Christian college. And then there was a person at college and he admitted to me that he had raped a 14-year-old boy. So I don't know why he told me this. Mm Well, I do know why he told me this, because he knew that I was gay, because mm-hmm. I told him in a very private conversation, mm-hmm. I said, I'm having these feelings. 
And I think that he thought that it was so evil what I had told him that he could tell me something equally evil in his mind, oh which, God. as we know, is yeah. like there's one thing that was not evil and one thing that was truly evil. Yeah. Um, but he tells me that in his youth group, he raped a 14-year-old boy. I mean, he <sighs> talked about it in graphic detail. And he told me this after having raped me. So, you know, the worst possible combination of things has happened that that I could have ever dreamt of happening because of my queerness. You know, like it, the logic of this doesn't make sense to people who weren't raised in this bigotry. But anyone who's heard like, what are they going to do next? You know, fuck an animal if we let them marry. Or if you hear if a teacher is gay, then he's going to rape a child. And these were the things that you heard. So out of all of the possible punishments that could have happened, rape from another man was like the one that seemed most of all to confirm what people had told me in my childhood, right? That gay sex would be rape, that you would live a life of torture that this is what it was. Are you willing to have that cost? You know, not only will you lose your soul, but you will also lose any sort of potential happiness because it's a dead end, right? That's what they say. So, like, I tell my friends Charles and Dominique, who are my only two really close friends at the time, aside from him at college. And I said to Dominique, like, I think that what happened last night was rape. Mm. And crazy, I remember we were on like this tennis court because we didn't trust anyone to not eavesdrop. I told her the whole thing, but I said, but more importantly, I think he raped a 14-year-old boy. And I think, I don't know what to do about it. Like, I, I really don't know what to do. Then I decided to go to the pastor at the college. And I go to her and I tell her the whole thing. I don't tell her the details of my rape, but I tell her about the 14-year-old boy. And she's like, well, unless you have any sort of proof this is just hearsay. Meanwhile, Dominique calls her mom and says, like, we don't know what to do about this person who has committed a rape with a 14-year-old boy. And it sounds really complicated, but, like, then her mom called him. Dominique's, Dominique's mom, mom called hears the him. story. Then she calls him. Okay. And I'm like, Dominique, don't tell us all. Yeah. Let me, you know, Dominique she told us all. Her mom. Because you know, what are you going to do with knowledge a about lot of a 14-year-old yeah. being raped? Yeah. You're like, I don't, I didn't know what to Let do. Let me tell the like, authority yeah. figure I trust in my yeah. life, my mom, I'll tell my mom. So mom, you know, this mom calls him and tells, you know, chews him out. It's just like, you're a horrible human being, the cops are going to come for you, all this stuff, right? Not true, she didn't tell the cops, but she's telling him all this stuff. So he, in retaliation... <laughs> This is like the worst period of my life. It's like even it's hard to even describe because it's so insane. So he, in retaliation, calls my mom. There are a lot of moms. Involved There's a lot of moms in this story. <laughs> okay, got it. Moms are both like the agent of chaos mm-hmm. and the savior figures yeah. in the story. No, it's okay. They contain <laughs> like, multitudes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he calls my mom and he's like, "Garrett has admitted to being gay to me." And he is living an openly gay lifestyle. Not true, right? But he's saying this to retaliate, make sure I don't tell my mom anything, right? So by by preempting anything I can say mm-hmm. to my parents, mm-hmm. he has made sure that if I say he raped someone, it's like right. there's nothing. So he calls her and he says, like, Garrett's openly gay. He's living this lifestyle. You wouldn't even recognize him anymore. 
he tells everyone that this is true on the campus, mm-hmm. basically like everyone that we knew. And then he sends someone over, a close friend of mine, to come over to where I was staying at Charles and Dominique's. And this friend comes over and says, well, your mom is coming to pick you up. She's going to kick you out of school. You're not going to have anything paid for anymore. And it's over. How does this person know this? Because he has told them oh, that my it. mom got it, is got freaking it. out and that she's coming to the to wow. the school. Wow. So I'm like sitting in Charles's room just like, what? Yeah. I guess she's going to like drive over here and yeah. take me out. Yeah. And meanwhile, this person, the evil person who did this, <laughs> I can't say his name, so I just have to no, like refer. In, yeah, um, I get He's in a, in a podcast about compassion. He is the one that I don't have any for. Totally. And I never will. That's, and that's great. Just, that's just a This solid is not fact. a mandate. Yeah, I say exactly. this frequently. Yeah, yeah. Compassion, empathy he's is not the a one. Mandate. I have a lot of, there are a lot of different people on different scales, but yeah. he's the one that just doesn't even. He's, a, he's, yeah. he's actually not registered yeah, on Yeah, yeah, he doesn't register. And um, that's okay. yeah. So he invites a bunch of his friends to just go through all my stuff. And like, they're like looking through everything I've ever written. Like, and I'm just like, this is the worst. This is horrible. Yeah, it's the worst. I've just been raped and like told that this isn't a thing. I didn't put all this in the book because I was just like, it's too complicated. Right. But um, now here we are. But mom comes. She's invited a friend with her because she's scared of whatever she's going to see. And I, I sit with her on a bench mm-hmm. like in the quad and i'm like what he said is absolutely not true mm. he raped someone and like i mean it's just like a tit for tat right we're just like trying to combat each other yeah. in all these different ways and she's like well i still think you should go home and talk to your dad and so we go home i'm like crying in the back seat her poor friend who like i know as well from childhood is just like is oh, there. i don't know what's going <laughs> in the car <laughs> yeah just okay. like just wow while i'm in the back seat just like sobbing you know? yeah oh my god <laughs> they're really witnessing something yeah they're, they're just, gonna write a book yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're traumatized yeah yeah, yeah. Forever, you know? <laughs> exactly um and, and i go back home and mom takes me into their bedroom and dad like closes the door it's like a father-son talk and he's like is any of this true and i'm like he did rape a 14-year-old boy, and dad's like, well, is any of it true about you? And he was like, I need you to answer this, but I need you to swear to God when you answer it. And I was still enough of a Christian at this point to be like, I'm not about to like condemn my soul to blasphemy and hell yeah. forever in this moment. Okay. So I'm like, I can't do that. And then it all just kind of comes out. And I'm like, I've felt this way for years. And he's like, well, we need to do something about it. And I don't know what that means. My mom is actually vomiting at this point because she's so upset. And I'm like checking my credit score, which I've never done. (laughs) What makes you do that? Because I'm like, what if they don't pay for my college? What if I'm kicked out? What if I don't have a life anymore? What if I'm on the streets? All these what ifs, right? Because yeah. my, my dad just says, we've got to take care of this. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. So meanwhile, they're calling the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And they're like, oh, don't worry. We have brochures for this place called Love in Action. We'll send it to you. We're going to handle this from here on out. And so my dad comes down and like offers me the ultimatum, which is like, you go to this place called Love in Action or we're not going to pay for your college anymore. I had a scholarship, but not a full scholarship. We're not going to pay for college, which is like the one lifeline that I've had. Right. Right. We're not going to pay for college. You're not going to see me or your mother again. Ever. 
if you don't go to this place. Got it. And like, yeah, technically, this is a question I always get. You know, it's like, why didn't you just fight back? Why didn't you go to New York? Why didn't you, all those things, right? These well, are when audience members yes, engage in the hypothetical. Yes, they and they're always, like, this they is like what I would that. have done. And you're like, well, I was about to be. It sometimes happens online. Kicked out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, I was technically 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I was going to lose my family. I was mm-hmm. going to lose my education. And I was going to lose God. Yeah. That was what was being offered to me. You lose all of that, every lifeline you've ever had, or you do this program. Stay right there. We will be right back. Before we continue, I just want to say thanks for being here. Also, you can be on this show too. Has someone said something negative about you online, or maybe you've said something negative about someone else? Either way, after this episode is over, go to www.conversationswithpeoplewhohateme.com where you can fill out a guest form. And if you don't want to be on this show, that is totally cool. I appreciate you just the same. Maybe consider telling a friend about this show. Word of mouth has brought this podcast around the world, so your recommendation goes a long way. And we are back. Garrett has just started at Love in Action. Yeah, I mean, it just didn't feel like there was a choice. And so you went to Love in Action. Yeah, I went to Love in Action the summer between freshman and sophomore year. Which leads to the next question, which is, can you give us the overview of Love in Action? So the overviews were handed like a handbook with 275 pages of rules and and ways you're supposed to stand and act and wear, like what you're supposed to wear, mm-hmm. the places that you can go in the city while you're there, which are very few. There's a zone. It's called the safe zone. <laughs> and um, you're like allowed to be in certain places. You can't even go to a secular bookstore. Well, they tell you like... Wake up at 6.30, take a shower by 7, eat your breakfast, come here. And we had like this quiet time where you had to reflect on Christ a lot. And then we had like, now I very facetiously refer to it as like an arts and crafts session. But it was like we we basically created these, you know, anywhere from like a mask that would show our inner and outer selves, like what we showed to the world versus our corrupt inner beings that were sinful or um, we did this thing called a genogram, which is actually a very normal um, therapeutic technique usually. Mm-hmm. But Love in Action likes to spice things up a little. So they added um, what were called sin symbols mm-hmm. to our family trees that we created. And, you know, we had like our whole family up there. And we had to look at our family and decide what sins they most represented in their lives. So like my uncle... My poor uncle who's dead now, I still feel bad. I wrote, you know, I had to write down every sin he'd ever done because we we knew he was like a big sinner. Okay. You know, he was a drug addict, alcoholic. And his addiction caused your homosexuality. Yeah. yeah. So you, you put all these symbols like D for drug addict, yeah. uh, dollar sign for gambling because gambling is evil, well, according to these people. Yeah. So is... Dungeons and Dragons and like oh. yoga. So, well, we're casting a yeah. wide net of well, evil. Yoga is Eastern. I see. It's too Eastern. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're getting into yeah. racist territory yeah. now. Okay. Love that. Well, they, they thought it was like an Eastern religion that was influencing people, just regular yoga. Wow. Yeah. Um, Dungeons and Dragons activated sort of demonic parts of your imagination. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there, it was not Christ-based because there were like goddesses and stuff, which Got it. I don't even know if there really are any gods or goddesses in Dungeons and Dragons, but but they didn't like it. Close enough. Yeah, the title is yeah seems, seems like yeah you shouldn't have a dragon Mm-mm. and dinosaurs are fake, obviously. Good. <laughs> Tell them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there were like arts and crafts, but we also had these things called rap sessions, which are another part of therapeutic language. W or R. R. Actually rap. R-A-P. Yeah, we didn't actually rap, though. It's just called a rap session. I don't really know why someone Mm -hmm. smarter than us can Maybe it was a W that they intended, but they misspelled it, and it was a... They misspelled a lot of things. Okay, so I think that's... It it was a wrap-up, kind of? No. Then I'm wrong. This is a thing that I've looked up. Um, it's real, apparently. Yeah. Um, and you sit around in a group and you sort of just like discuss your problems. And in normal situations, that might be really helpful for people. But in our situation, um, I'm sitting next to people dealing with anything from bestiality to pedophilia to marriage issues to just all sorts. Wow. All sorts were there. And yeah, it was under the assumption that we were all addicted to our sexuality, sexuality, which they wouldn't even think we're sexuality. They would say like our attractions, right? And uh, it's bad enough that I'm sitting next to someone who is dealing with pedophilia because I'm like worried about what had just happened. Dealing with pedophilia, meaning they're the victim of no, pedophilia? they are a pedophile. Oh, and this is equated. Yes, we're equated to pedophiles and people who have sex with animals. And I have, I truly say this like with a full, like, it's not ironic or anything. Like, that person dealing with pedophilia just needed different therapy. Totally. Right. You, You don't need to be in therapy with like a 15 year old. No. This is, yeah. In fact, dangerous. It's just not for good them for and anyone. Yeah, just not good for anyone. So we're we're all sitting there of all ages, dealing with all things, and everyone's sort of just talking about their stuff, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sitting there talking about fantasies that I've had about men, mm-hmm. but someone else is talking about fantasies they have about a child or when they <laughs> did something with a child. And, yeah. And you and all of the 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 message that's going into everyone's brain is we're all the same, mm-hmm. right? Which is not helpful for the pedophile either, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we're just absorbing this idea that everyone's addicted to all of the same thing, mm-hmm. um, which is very harmful. And um, and that went on. You know, I was there for approximately two weeks, and and the whole thing with love and action is that you go for two weeks for an intro session. Well, you do the six months beforehand, one-on-one. Then you go for two weeks for the intro session. Then you stay for a month. Then it's like half a year. And then they convince you to stay for a year. And then you become a counselor. Like, that's the... There's a hierarchy. There's a trajectory, yeah. right? It's like from the beginning, that's where you're going. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I was I was there for two weeks doing that daily for like 10 hours. And another kind of now funny criticism that i would sometimes get at the beginning it's like you were only there for two weeks how bad could it be and um you're like let me (laughs) tell you have you ever sat through 10 hours of real brainwashing because it is something yeah it is like really powerful because they have so much conviction Mm -hmm. yeah it's just like after a while it's very compelling to just give in And, and did you give in i did for a while 
I gave in until something jolted me out. We had to sit across from an empty chair, and basically we had to like say, we had to yell at our father figure. because If you were a gay man, you're yelling at your father figure. I don't know who you're yelling at if you had sex with your dog. But it was bunk science, bunk whatever. It, everything was bunk. And and I, I remember just being like, okay, I guess I am upset with my dad a little bit for doing this and for giving me the ultimatum, but mostly I feel an overwhelming sense of sadness at our loss together, mm-hmm. that, that we are now in this place where we don't understand each other at all, and he sees me as a different person. And, mm-hmm. you know, like what a real therapy session would be if you were working through a gay kid's horrible upbringing. Yeah. Right? And I'm saying all this stuff to them, and they're like, no, you're angry with him. Trying to fit me into a model of... What they think they understand. Yeah, because turns out stereotypes don't really work well as a form of therapy. Because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Wild, wild thought, <laughs> yeah. but here's so, Garrett with a hot yeah, take. Yeah, so wild, yeah, right? Yeah, you're actually um, going to revolutionize yeah. <laughs> therapy right now. So I'm like, no, I'm I'm really not. I'm telling you what I feel. And they're like, no, you're wrong. And so they're trying to goad me into being angry because this is going to be some sort of catharsis that's going to like release a moment for me that I've been holding up and I'm going to suddenly be one step closer to being cured. Um, and I just keep arguing. It's like a group of people I'm in. It's like I'm on a stage. I mean, it's an auditorium and like everyone in the therapy is there watching me. And it's your turn, mm-hmm. right? And I'm just like, no, it's just not true. Like, stop. Do, and I am getting angry, and I'm getting mad that they're making me angry because I'm like, this is not how it's supposed to go. Like, I'm supposed to be strong always. Yeah. And there's something truthful. I mean, there's there's a nuance here that I was never able to capture in my book or the film wasn't able to capture because I think it's actually so nuanced that it, like, blows your mind. Mm-hmm. Where, like, what they were doing was helping me mm-hmm. because they were like they were telling me this obvious non-truth mm-hmm. that i was feeling like that was so clearly body. a non-truth yeah and i yeah. was just like this is clearly wrong for once like it's not i don't need to consult the bible i don't need to like go pray to jesus like this is truly evil what you're telling me you're telling me to hate my father mm-hmm. right and i'm not going to do it i'm just not mm. like if I am going to do it, it's going to be me doing it, you know? And so they're, like, pushing me to get angry, and I did need to get angry, right? Like, that's the that's the irony here is that I did actually need therapeutically to get angry at them to get out of there. And unintentionally, yes, they gave it they to did. you. They, yeah. they gave it to me. And I'm like, if I agree with you here, my whole life from here on out is being a complete fake person. Yeah. It's like going back to the point – that I was with Chloe and being like, everything's fine, let's get married. Yeah. I could feel that. I felt like, it was like that was the first tremor with Chloe. The second tremor was like being told that rape was not a thing. Right. And the third was like here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And finally it was just like an earthquake because you're like, this This is going to lead to my death. Yeah. And, and I'm going to take everyone down with me. Yeah. You can feel it. And you you're know? aware of that. I could feel it. As a writer, you learn to avoid like epiphany moments because they're cliched. But it was an epiphany. It was a true epiphany. And I think to this day, I'm not a super religious person, but I do think that if there is a God, 
God gave me that in yeah. that moment. Because wow. I was just like, I know. I I had never been that certain in my life that what they were doing was going to kill me. And it was going to kill everyone that loved me. Like, not that I was going to go shoot them or anything, but it was just like, it's going to take them down with me because they love me. Yeah. And I walked out and called mom. Uh, you know, they take all your stuff away when you come in. And so I had to, like, beg for my phone back. And they're like, we can't give it to you. And I was like, it's an emergency. You have yeah. to give it to me. And so I took it and called mom. And she comes up. And, of course, they run off to the side of the car. And they're like, he needs to stay longer. He's yeah. extremely gay. Yeah, like, extremely gay. Yeah, a like, lot it's just a really be. deep case. You yeah. know, it's like yeah. stage four gayness. <laughs> you were diagnosed <laughs> yeah, with the exactly. science that yeah. they had. Yeah, exactly. And then she starts asking questions like, you know, what are your degrees? Turns out there's no degree in conversion therapy. Right. It doesn't exist. It's not a graduate level track. No. <laughs> just some people made it up. Yeah. And so she's like, I can't believe I never asked that question before. And I'm sitting there, you know, next to her in the car, just. You're in the passenger seat. Yeah. She's in, in, the, in the driver's yeah, and seat. She's in the driver's They're seat. They're on her side of the car. They're on her side. Of the, not even talking to me. They're, just They're not like, even checking to no. see if I'm okay. That's fine. No. What, whatever you're feeling, yeah. he can feel because whatever. Because I'm supposed to have been pushed to that yeah. edge. And she's the money, too. Yeah, she is the money. Yeah. And this like, is, I, I mean, this isn't a tangent, but we do have to acknowledge this is also a business model, oh, right? it is a business model. Yeah. I mean, I later found out they made a million dollars that year. Well, And it's a small, it's not like it's a giant. Yeah, it's a small operation. Yeah, like the people that work there made quite a bit. Yeah. Way more than we'll ever make. So they're like, yeah. and I, I'm, I don't say this to trivialize it but they're losing a customer. They are. And I think that when we hold people accountable, I don't ignore that fact. Mm -hmm. And it was a business model. Mm -hmm. And like all the complications are still there, but we have to acknowledge that, yeah. you know, there was a way in which they knew how to protect their investments. Yeah, I was a good investment, right? They knew from most of my attitude that I had always been like a people pleaser. They knew that I wanted more than anything to be reunited with my parents. So there there was a lot there. And she's like, I can't, you know, she drives off and she's like, we're still enrolled, you know. She's like, oh, let me think about it. Mm -hmm. She drives off. We're like on the interstate going back to our hotel. And I'm freaking out. I'm trying to like grab the airbag. I don't know why. And mom asked me a question that she'd begun to worry about in her own time. And she said, are you going to kill yourself? Because she'd also heard stories of people committing, committing suicide. suicide. And I was like, yes. And she, without any questioning, she went back to the hotel. We packed our stuff up. She told them we're not coming back. We went home, didn't tell dad we were coming home, just show up. And he's like, did it work? You know, we're back a day early. Mom's like, no, we're obviously here unexpectedly. Yeah. And it didn't work. And it's never going to work. Well, go her. Yeah. For at least coming to it in that moment. She did. And I think, I don't think it's an at least thing. I think it's like a people that haven't lived their life brainwashed in some way mm -hmm. don't understand how hard it is and how actually almost impossible it is for people to truly change. Yeah. Like my mom truly changed. changed. Like just from that point. You know, it wasn't just like here before and after. Now she's perfect. Mm -hmm. But it was a true change. Yeah. And she started praying to God saying like, if I need to change, change me. And she did. Whoa. And she said she felt it. 
She felt the answer was that she needed to change. She wow. prayed with her full heart. For change. For change. And she got it. I mean, you're illustrating, I think, what I'm also trying to discuss here, which is in the larger sense of the podcast, which is that change is this like deeply unsexy process yeah. that takes a long <laughs> time good. and it doesn't happen because of an epic clapback no. tweet. No. It doesn't happen <laughs> because of um, any kind of large humiliation that your enemy may face. As good as that can feel in the moment. Yeah. It can happen sometimes politically, yes. right? Like we can protest and that can totally. cause real change. Totally. But, but that's a p- protesting against yeah. a system yeah. and not a specific person. But a change on the micro level doesn't happen that quickly and it takes time. No. I mean, my mom apologized to me for like, well, she still does, but for 10 years straight, every time we talked, wow, she would say, I just want to say it again. And I'd be like, okay, I'm so tired of hearing this, yeah. but okay. But, I get that it's part of your... <laughs> yeah, it's part of, yeah. part of your shtick now. Yeah. Yeah, not shtick. I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm no, only... It, it was a bit of a shtick. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, then God bless. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, it was part of her repertoire. Yeah, and I would be like, shut up, it's fine. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't care anymore. But, but she meant it. Yeah, it and seems. she had to. Yeah. And like sometimes we have to still deal with her trauma from that time mm-hmm. because she's still dealing with the what she did. Yeah. Um, so who is John Smid? Well, John ran Love in Action when I was there. Mm-hmm. He was involved in the quote-unquote ex-gay movement for a very long time. I remember at first he was like a kind of Sunday school teacher that I'd encountered before. Warm, welcoming, kind. For many of us who had been newly outed, here's a man who has been through the same feelings that I've had. Mm -hmm. And he's saying like, yeah, it is sinful, but I'm going to help you. Did you have a sense of warmth for him there? Yeah. Yeah. At first. Yeah. I started to hate him. And and also like for multiple reasons. One is that he's brainwashing me. But another, uh, the shameful for me still that I feel reason that I hated him was that I remember thinking to myself, he's too flamboyant. Mm-hmm. And judging him for it. Wow. And being like, it's showing. Recognizing yeah, that. Yeah, being like, yeah, you're gross because it's showing. Oh. Like, I can see your gayness, gayness. coming out. Well, Isn't that messed up? Well, this is, I mean, I think. It's the, all internalized, yeah. Yeah, I think it's the epitome of hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And that's the like, yep. when it's like getting yeah, exactly. to the bottom of the funnel and it's <laughs> exactly. like really ping-ponging back and forth. And I remember just like watching him. Yeah. I wish I'd written this in the memoir. It would have been better, but it's yeah. fine. Hey, we're rewriting You it never now. know. You never know until you're yeah. like processing all this stuff years later. But I remember just like looking at him and being like, watching him for moments of the collapse, like his facade of potential straightness has fallen through and I can see it and he's disgusting. You're talking about in those two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Watching him do, and like every time I would hear his voice kind of lisp, I'd be like, disgusting. Wow. Can you believe it? Mm. Were you policing your own voice at the time? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'd police my own voice for like my whole life. Yeah. It's hard to shake it. Yeah, and also just the way I walked and talked. And yeah, I mean, I just remember watching John and being like, it's disgusting. Yeah. You got to change. You got to change. Did you hate him in that time? There were waves of hate. Yeah. Like sometimes I was like, oh, save me. Mm -hmm. You know, Sunday school teacher. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Uh, and the other one is like, I find you disgusting. And then the other one is like, you're trying to destroy me, mm. who I am, and I hate you. So have you had like really in-depth conversations with John? Never an in-depth conversation. Never an in-depth. No. Well, how do you feel about the fact that you're about to have uh, your first in-depth conversation with him? Um, I feel mostly good about it because... I trust my intuition. I think it's time. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I'm in a place now where I feel healed enough mm-hmm. to do some more healing. Yeah, You know, like I know it's going to be a bit difficult at first and like the things that I don't think are going to wound me from this interview will because I know enough about how these things go. You know, like it'll be like a year's worth of work mm-hmm. after this. But – oh. No, I mean, just like yeah. personal work. Uh-huh. I know that, uh-huh. but I'm willing to do it. I've recently had this kind of change mm-hmm. where I'm more willing to talk about the complexities of what John has experienced mm-hmm. because I think that any movement requires a kind of broad a broadening over time mm-hmm. uh, of compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to do real restorative justice rather than name-calling or finger-pointing, um, and so I think it's important, even though these 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 sort of players that come back in and are invited into the conversation once more mm-hmm. after harming us, I think it's important for uh, e- even if they're problematic mm-hmm. or don't say the right thing at the right mm-hmm. time, um, that it's it's important to to talk with them totally. But it's, you feel safe to do this, yeah, emotionally totally. safe, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, to be continued. Yes. And I'll talk to John, and then we'll all talk together. Beautiful. Hello? Hey, John, it's Dylan. Part two, my one-on-one conversation with John, is next week. If you have an idea for a conversation for this show, head on over to www.conversationswithpeoplewhohateme.com and fill out the brief submission form. Conversations with People Who Hate Me is a part of the TED Audio Collective. This episode was mixed by Vincent Cachione. The theme song is These Dark Times by Caged Animals. The logo was designed by Philip Blackowl with a photo by Mindy Tucker. And this show is made by me, Dylan Marin. You can pre-order Conversations with People Who Hate Me, the book, by following the link in the description of this episode, or you can buy it wherever you buy books. Thank you so much for listening, and guess what? We are weekly now, so stay tuned next week for a brand new conversation. And until then, remember, there's a human on the other side of the screen. Dark times.